So it's said that we all lose 21 grams at the exact moment of our death. The weight of a stack of nickels, the weight of a chocolate bar, the weight of a hummingbird, the weight this bar of soap. Three quarters of an ounce, 21 grams. The question posed is simple and yet it's profound. How much does a human life weigh? On April 10th, 1901, an unusual experiment was conducted in Dorchester, Massachusetts. Dr. Duncan McDougall set out to prove that the human soul had mass and therefore it could be measured. He ducted this strange experiment on six dying patients who suffered from tuberculosis, who were placed on weight scales just moments prior to their death. And then once the patient died, an interesting event occurred. It was determined that the average weight loss of each patient was three quarters of an ounce, 21 grams. McDougall explained, the instant life ceased to exist, the scale fell with a suddenness that was astonishing, as if something was suddenly lifted from the body. Immediately, all the usual deductions were made for physical loss of weight, and it was discovered that a full ounce of weight was still unaccounted for. Not every patient lost the same amount of weight, but every patient did lose something that could not be accounted for. 21 grams that could not be accounted for after all of the other weight factors were calculated in. The implication was that the 21 grams was the weight of a human soul which means that you are more than flesh and blood, which means that you are more than dust and water, that at your core you are a spiritual being of infinite value and worth. Jesus said the kingdom of God is within us. And yet how often do we simply neglect to explore if that truth is really there or not, that if we all lose exactly 21 grams at the moment of our death, the weight of a stack of nickels, the weight of a chocolate bar, the weight of a hummingbird, the weight of a bar of soap, then the question that we have to answer is, can we feel it? Can we feel our soul? Can we feel those 21 grams? And if we were to lose it, would we notice that it's gone? So our question over the next 40 days of this Lenten season is the same question that Jesus asked. What good will it be for someone to have gained the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? At most times, in most places, at most ages, most people believe that human beings have some kind of soul. 
that we are in some ways spiritual beings. We know that it matters. We suspect that it's important, but we just have no clue what it is or what it all means. So one of the earliest formations in my understanding of the soul came from Looney Tunes. You might recall the scene, right? Bugs Bunny gets blown up by, uh, or Daffy Duck gets blown up by uh, Donald um, Bugs, uh, Daffy Duck, right? That's who I did, right? Um, gets blown up, and uh, you see this little, like, uh, transparent image of Daffy Duck, you know, floating up into heaven with halo overhead and harp in hand. So is that, is that what the soul is? Some ghostly apparition of our bodies floating up to God? I mean, is that what accounts for the 21 grams that we see? And so even though most of us, maybe not all of us, but most of us have matured beyond Sunday morning cartoons, we still have this kind of Looney Tunes theology when it comes to our soul. That we think that our soul is something that's just totally separate from the rest of our body, the rest of, of the things that make us who we are. And so we think of our bodies like an envelope, and our souls like a letter that God just shoves within there. And that when we die, well, the envelope can just be torn open and discarded because it doesn't really matter that what's essential is the letter, the soul. But that's not really how the Bible speaks of us as human beings. It's not how the Bible speaks of the soul. The very first mention of the soul comes from Genesis chapter 2, where it says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Or another way you could put that is, and the man became a living soul. That it's the breath of God that makes us come alive. It's the breath of God, God's spirit within us that makes us fully alive, that gives us our soul. And so let's learn some Hebrew this morning. Hang with me here, okay? The same word for breath in Hebrew is the same word that's used for spirit. It's, it's ruah. It's the breath of God, the spirit of God, the ruah of God that is put into each and every one of us. It is that which makes us come alive. And so the ancient authors of the Bible, they, they understood that there was no disconnection between the soul and the body, between the spirit of God, the ruah, the breath of God, our souls and our bodies, that we cannot be a spiritual being without a physical body. And vice versa, we cannot be a physical being without that spiritual breath. That it's in God's spirit that we live and move and have our very being. That this thought was so essential for the early authors of the Bible that the Hebrew word for soul is nephesh. And it refers to this. This part of our body. That it was thought that the soul resided right here in the throat. That with every inhale and every exhale, 
your soul was at work. And what I think is really interesting is that this part of your body is also the most vulnerable part of your body. I think of it when you uh, are poised to attack, when you're going to make uh, a fatal effort to defeat or criticize someone, you hear people say, go for the jugular, go, go for the throat, go for the most vulnerable part of them. And you know, it kind of makes a lot of sense in a weird way. Because the most vulnerable part of who we are I think, is our soul. And the part of us that's most under attack and most at risk, I believe, is our soul, whether we pay attention to it or not. Dallas Willard, one of the greatest spiritual writers, I think, of the last century, he talked about the the human being and the human soul in this way. He said that there's essentially four kind of concentric circles that make up who we are. And so the first part of us is our will. So your will is your ability to choose. You can say yes or no. Your will is what separates you from a plant or a remote control or a billboard on the side of the road. It's, it's core to us as human beings. And so just think about it. What's, what's a toddler's favorite word? No. What's a toddler's second favorite word? Mine. <laughs> right? That's because they're learning how to exercise their little will. And so we believe that, that we have free will, that we have the ability to choose uh, the good or the bad, that we have the ability to choose God or not to choose God, that we have the ability to choose goodness and righteousness, or we can choose sin. The will is so central, so essential to who we are, but it's also so limited. Know that it's the smallest of those four circles. I mean, so do you ever find yourself doing something that that goes against your values or goes against your better judgment? See, the will is, is good at making either extremely small or extremely large decisions or commitments, but it's terrible at overcoming habits, patterns, uh, thoughts that are deeply ingrained within us. That you can't just will yourself to better health. I mean, that's important, but it takes more than willpower to get your physical body up out of bed, put shoes on your feet, and put your body to doing some physical work. It takes more than just the will. You can't just will yourself to be a better father or mother or spouse or PTA member or driver or barista or any of that. And sometimes we think that with just enough willpower, we can do anything But while the will is so powerful, it's also so limited. And so Dallas says there's a second part of us, and it's it's our mind. Our mind is where our thoughts and our feelings reside. The mind is that flowing part of us. It's curious, it's creative, it's contemplative. And while the will cannot direct the mind. The will has really not a whole lot of say over the mind. The will cannot override the thoughts or feelings of a person. And so 
just to prove it, here's an experiment. Ready? Don't think of a purple stop sign. Let's give it a second. Now, how many of you have a purple stop sign pictured in your mind right now? Yeah, yeah. Because while the mind is really powerful and the will are really powerful, oftentimes they don't work well together. They don't communicate with one another. Often they are at odds with one another. And so he says there's a third kind of layer to who we are, and that is our body. That's the most visible part that the world sees. Our body is our own little kingdom. It's the visible part of us that gets presented out to the world, sometimes with applause, sometimes with criticism. And the body is great, but the body also has all of these little appetites that it runs off of, like food, and water, rest, intimacy. And the body has a hard time communicating with the will, and that's why we eat a whole bag of Cheetos and uh, a thing of ice cream at night, right? Because our body has a hard time communicating with our will. Our body has a hard time communicating with our mind. And so we give into temptation and we make some bad decisions that we end up regretting the next day. And so all of these things, the will, the mind, the body, they're, they're all good. They're all powerful in their own right. But so often they're disconnected from one another. So, so often they're not integrated and they're not working together. That these, these parts... Uh, when they become disconnected from each other, that's when we get in trouble. (laughs) That's when we can't force ourselves off the couch when we've been binge-watching TV for too long. That's when we give in to our appetites of lust and gluttony and violence. And so if you were to think about it and think about any mistake that you've ever made in your life or any sin you've ever committed... If you think about it long enough, you'll find that it was one of these areas of who you are that was disconnected or or that got enlarged and it overrode what you really wanted, what was really good for you. And so there's one last part of us, the most important part, but often the most neglected. It's what makes us who we are and, in fact, makes us more than who we are. It's... The soul. You see, the soul ties everything else together. It's like the operating system on your computer. It's there, but you don't really notice it until something goes wrong. And then you realize that you've got a big problem. Your soul integrates your will, your intentions, your minds, your thoughts, your feelings, your body, your facial expressions, your body language, your actions, your appetites. The soul integrates all of that into a single beautiful thing called you. That when the Bible speaks of a soul, it speaks of a whole person. The soul gets all of the parts that make you who you are, your will, your mind, your body. It gets all of that working together for good. The soul makes you practice what you preach, talk the talk, and walk the walk. And when the soul is healthy, there's harmony between the will, the mind, and the body. And you feel in the flow with God. 
But when the soul is unhealthy, the rest of us collapses. Because if a healthy soul brings integration between all of these other things, our will, our mind, our body, if if a healthy soul is to bring integration and integrity between who we are, then an unhealthy soul brings disintegration. We fall apart. We collapse. We become less than who God created us to be. We turn back to dust and ash. We are merely water and carbon. But that's not how God created us to be. God breathed God's spirit into each and every one of us. Yes, we are made from dust. Yes, we are carbon and water, flesh and blood, but we are also spirit. And God did not create us to be disintegrated. God did not create us to be fractioned and partitioned off. God created us to be whole persons who are wholly alive. As St. Irenaeus put it this way, he said, the glory of God is man fully alive. That when we are fully alive, our souls are healthy. We're fully integrated between will, mind, and body, and our souls bring glory to God. That God looks at us once again and delights in us. That God looks at us again and says, it is very good. This is my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. But here's the danger. The danger is that we live in a world that malnourishes our soul. And that's because we've replaced the soul with the self. Let me explain that. Because it's a huge shift, not, not only in words, but, but also in actions. That American philosophy has substituted the word self for the word soul. And they are not the same thing. There's a brilliant uh, psychologist named Martin Siegelman who had no religious axe to grind, by the way. But he noticed as a psychologist that people were becoming more and more depressed, that he was diagnosing more and more people as having clinical depression. And he thought that this was strange since he had seen over his career just such an expanse in uh, mental health resources. But he noticed that depression was on the rise. That seriously, someone of my generation is three times more likely to become depressed than someone of a previous generation. And so his theory as to why this is, is really fascinating. His theory is that we've replaced the larger things of our lives with something much, much smaller. He said we've replaced the things of our lives that used to be so central like church and faith and community and neighborhood with something so tiny, a tiny little unit that cannot possibly bear the weight of all that meaning We've shrunk it all down into the self. That we're all about the self. That our lives revolve around ourself. 
Uh, think about this, even in the way that we talk about it. That, that if you're feeling empty, then you need to go and find something to fulfill yourself. That if you're stressed, then you need to go and take care of yourself. If you're facing a challenge, then you need to just believe in yourself. If you're feeling blue, then you just need to love yourself. If someone is pushing you around and bullying you, then you need to stand up for yourself. If you're on a date or a job interview, what do people say? Just be yourself. That we've replaced the larger, grander parts of who we are, that what makes us, us, our souls, for something so much smaller, ourselves. That now the extent of who we are has been limited to just will, mind, and body. That's the self. But let me ask, what, what happens when the self is a mess, right? What happens then? And ironically, the more obsessed that we become with ourselves, the more we neglect our souls. There's a balance there. That the more attention we give to ourselves, the more we end up neglecting that integrated whole that makes us who we are. As Dallas Willard says it again, he says, you are a soul made by God, made for God, and made to need God, which means that you were not made to be self-sufficient. Or as the Apostle Paul bluntly puts it, when he says, people whose lives are based on selfishness, think about selfish things. But people whose lives are based on the Spirit think about things that are related to the Spirit. The attitude comes from selfishness leads to death, but the attitude that comes from the Spirit leads to life and peace. So the attitude that comes from the selfishness is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law because it can't. People who are self-centered aren't able to please God. But you aren't self-centered, Paul reminds them. Instead, you are in the Spirit. If, in fact, God's Spirit lives in you. If anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, they don't belong to him. Or again, let me remind you of Jesus' words. When he said, all who want to come after me must say no to themselves Take up their cross and follow me. All who want to save their lives will lose them. But all who lose their lives because of me will find them. Why would people gain the whole world but lose their lives, lose their souls? What will people give in exchange for their lives? What does it profit a person to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? And so we often translate that into Christianese to mean, what does it profit us if we indulge in sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but at the end of the day, we just end up in hell? I mean, what does it profit us if we sell our soul to the devil for a fiddle made of gold? But Jesus isn't talking about hell here, I don't think. That he's not talking about a destination of our souls, but instead, I think he's talking about a diagnosis That to lose my soul means that I no longer have that foundation for the rest of my life. 
that to lose my soul means that I no longer have a center. I no longer have a barrier and the rest of my life just spills out everywhere else. That it's like having a car without a steering wheel or a ship without a rudder. That you can go and you can go as fast as you want but eventually without that you'll crash. And so here's Five symptoms, I think, of an unhealthy soul. Then maybe you can, you know, just kind of self-diagnose your soul right now. That if a soul weighs 21 grams, the weight of a stack of nickels, then this is what happens when we have an unhealthy soul. And when we focus not on our soul, but on our own self. See, what often happens is we have a great feeling of inferiority. That we look at the world around us, we look at the people around us, and we try to measure ourselves up to them, and we feel like we just don't add up. That we're inferior. So when we focus on ourselves, it takes away from our soul and it adds something to ourself that should not be there. Second symptom of an unhealthy soul is insecurity. That when we take a look into our lives, we we feel a lot of worry. We feel a lot of worry about the future. We feel like there's, there's not enough that we have. Insecurity takes away from the soul and it puts something on ourselves that really should not be there. There's inadequacy. Feeling like we don't have enough. That we don't have enough to actually meet the demands of everyday life. That we're not the father that we need to be. We're not the mother. We're not the employee, we're not any of that. We're, we're not a good enough Christian. It takes something from our soul and places it on ourself. The fourth is guilt. That there's something in your past that you just can't get over. That even though you may have asked God for forgiveness, you, you still feel like there's no way that God could possibly love me. Guilt takes a part of your soul. Finally, anxiety. This is a popular one. And I think maybe it's one of the greatest dangers of our day and age. That it takes something of our soul when we're so anxious, so worried, so hurried. That we don't have that time to rest and refresh in God that it takes something from our soul, places these unnecessary burdens on us. And so, you notice how the weight has shifted here? Notice the imbalance that is, is how this looks. Look like how you feel inside. That what God created to have weight, to hold, to be a center, is it lacking? Is it just almost non-existent? 
That's not how God created us. And so, I just want you to hear these kind of closing statements. That if anyone is struggling with feeling inferior, Galatians 3 says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, male or female, all are one in Christ Jesus. You are a beloved child of God. Any who struggle with feeling insecure. Hear this word from Ephesians chapter 2 that says, For you are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he has prepared for you before your birth. If any feel inadequate, hear these words from Jesus that say, Seek first the kingdom of God and all else will be given to you. Why worry about tomorrow? Tomorrow will bring worries of its own. If any who feel guilt, John 3.17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the whole world might be saved through him. Finally, anxiety. Hear Jesus say, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and you will find rest for your souls. How much does your soul weigh? The weight of a stack of nickels, the weight of a hummingbird, the weight of a bar of soap, the weight of, of immeasurable and infinite worth and value in God's eyes. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time that we've had together with you. Lord, help us. Help us to surrender our will to you. Lord, give us a mind that is renewed by you. Lord, a a body that is obedient to you. For we confess that, that we have been like sheep who have gone astray. We've wandered off. But Holy Spirit, call us back. Help us to return to you, Lord Jesus, for you are the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. You are the one that takes care that refreshes, that restores. So Lord, help us to find that today. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.